Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Sober October, the world of no and low alcohol has been transformed. It's nothing short of a revolution with innovation at its heart. Irem Aren of Bev Zero is my guest. She's at the cutting edge of this emerging category. So she'll tell us what's driving it and what is next. Conscious drinking, whether that's cutting out alcohol or just cutting down, is big business. The category is booming because the quality of what's on offer has been transformed. In 2022, sales of no and low alcohol beverages apparently grew by more than 7% in volume across 10 key global markets around the world, surpassing $11 billion in value. And that's just the latest rise in a category that's been growing rapidly for a decade or more. Irem Aren is a Master of Wine student. She's a former winner of the IWSC Emerging Talent in Wine Award, and she's a keen interest in No and Low, not least because she works for Bev Zero as Business Development Director. Irem, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, it's great to talk about what is a fascinating area. Um, a personal question first, if you don't mind, before we explore this fast-changing world of low and no, I mentioned you're an MW student, quite well progressed in that very gruelling process. Um, your background, looking at your CV on LinkedIn, is all about the wine business. So I'm assuming you're not actually teetotal. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not. Yes, as you say, I have have a background in wine business. It's about like 14, 15 years. And I, I mean, when I started in the wine business, I wanted to explore. My main goal was exploring all the possible, possible areas in the industry. So I worked from production to sales, marketing and education. I give WSET uh, level two, uh, three uh, classes and I also judge. But this was something like that I mean, I think when it started, the, the category started, I wanted to also explore this area so then I could have the full experience in the wine industry. And yeah, that's how I started. But yeah, I definitely enjoy uh, a good glass of wine or more. Yes, I think that is helpful probably to what you do. Not that there's anything wrong with being teetotal either, of course. I remember you winning the IWSC Emerging Talent in Wine Award. I remember because I was on the judging panel, actually. And you put huge emphasis on the uh, development of no and low. What has made you personally so fascinated with this particular area then? 
Actually, just my first connection, let's say, or introduction to the Noan law, it happened in Torres. When I, before joining to BevZero, I was working in Familia Torres and uh, strategic uh, marketing. So Natureo is one of the pioneer brands uh, of Torres. They launched in 2008, was one of the brands that I was uh, working with. And exploring this brand and how sales have tremendously increased in very short amount of time first of all it's like increased my curiosity and also the other thing is um my main drive i think is innovation and diversity which has been also inspiration for me in the journey but also what i see is um still wine industry is still traditional if we compare it to beers and spirits but with the emerging younger consumer, there's a thirst for innovation. So as a master of wine student, I see zero alcohol or low alcohol wine as an opportunity for wine category to innovate. Um, so, and I also see that it's a very exciting, exciting part of the future, wine's future. So that's how I got so excited about this area. Yeah, I'm not surprised. You were raised in Turkey. You've um, experience of wine markets around the world. You've lived around the world. It's fair to say that wherever you are, the interest in drinks without alcohol really is a global trend, isn't it? Uh, yes, it's a global trend, I must say, but also it is still a niche market. So there are uh, obviously some markets which are more developed than the others. Some markets are still there in the early stages, but some markets are evolving stages. For example, we we, can, we have like 10 core markets. Uh, leading is UK and Germany and also Nordics. And U.S. is leading in all the major no and low categories. But then now um, emerging markets are Japan, South Africa, Australia, Brazil, Canada, and Spain. Spain has been leading the way with non-alcoholic beer, but uh, wine options are increasing. So, yeah, I think it is actually I might say that maybe it's not a trend anymore. Uh, it's a category to stay here and globally. Do you find that in some of the more traditional wine countries, there's still a bit of reluctance to embrace no and low? Or is that changing? Uh, actually, when I started in the, in the category, it was more. There was more resistance in the traditional wine markets. But now it is changing. Um, so even in France, I mean, France is a very traditional wine producing country. But now when you see the multiple stores or convenience stores, now you see no and low products more and more. But also the production countries, I think uh, the issue a little bit or the challenge is because in the main wine production countries, there's so much tradition and history, they are the producers or the consumers, they're comparing these products with wine. So obviously it's not exactly the same. And that's why I think the producers and the wine lovers are having more resistance to these uh, products. But rather than in UK, US, uh, we see that there's much more um, tolerance to new options. So they're more, they like to explore more. I think that is I a little see. bit of the, the challenge, but it is, it is, I think it's uh, positively evolving, changing. 
Yeah, interesting. And of course, there are all sorts of reasons why someone wouldn't want alcohol. It could be for religious reasons. It could be because um, you know, they're pregnant. But actually, um, conscious drinking, as I mentioned in the introduction, that is something, certainly in my lifetime, that I've really become much more aware of. People saying, do you know what? I could drink. Uh, I could have alcohol, but I don't fancy it. Yeah, that's true. Actually, as, as you said before, these products and non-alcoholic products were seen as sacrifice for different regions, uh, reasons, religious reasons, or if you're a designated driver, then you cannot drink. But now I think with the, actually with the improved quality, but also COVID and the global trends of health and wellness has helped that this category becomes a little bit more part of our lifestyle because obviously with COVID, our uh, habits has changed a lot. So now I think we see consumers ranging from baby boomers to Gen Z and anything in between. And now it is not a um, sacrifice anymore. And it looks like a rite of passage or independence to a more responsible lifestyle. Um, and as you said, in, I mean, I can still consider myself like a millennial. I'm just at the border of millennial and uh, the Gen X. But I mean, in my area, with, I mean, when I want to socialize with my friends, we go out for a lunch or dinner and have a glass of wine or maybe a brunch, you know, like a bottomless brunch. But now young generation, they go and socialize over a yoga class or they do a hike and then they don't necessarily need to drink. They can have non-alcoholic drinks accompanying them in their social moments. So that's why I think it's very interesting. And that's the reason of um, why also the traditional grower markets are adapting this um, this change. Yeah, it is very interesting. Um, I've talked before about uh, no and low. In fact, I've um, presented alternatives on uh, ITVs this morning on at least one occasion. And I said uh, when I was on the telly that, and this is very much a personal opinion, that wine appeared to be lagging somewhat behind beer, which has done really well, and spirits, uh, a category that's been really innovative in terms of um, adapting to the demand for low and no alcohol. Would you say that that's a fair point for me? And if so, why would that be? Yeah, I think it's a definitely fair point. And I believe that there are different dynamics in the equation. And the first thing is uh, technical challenges uh, and difficulties. So if you're talking about a beer, you're talking about an alcohol level between anything between four to maximum 7% alcohol. And mostly all the non-alcoholic beers in the market, they're Pilsners or Lagers, and around 4.5-5% alcohol. So when we remove that alcohol, um, we're not removing huge parts from the balance of the product and also plus beer has carbonization so this carbonization these bubbles help a lot to elevate uh, the experience and compensate the lack of alcohol and also uh, in the spirits most of the spirits are in an alcoholic spirits are not to consume on their own they are used with mixers like non-alcoholic gin when you smell it it smells like a gin you smell all this juniper flavors but when you taste it it is a little bit disappointing because you are supposed to consume it with an um, a tonic uh, or a mixer so when it comes to wine uh, it is a drink to consume on its own without any mixers 
And also we are talking about much higher level of, of alcohol, like lowest uh, today for like a ripe, um, from the ripe grapes, the lowest wine of alcohol is like 11.5 and then it can go up to 16, 17. So we are removing very important portion from the equation of the balance. And it obviously affects the quality. And if you look at the best sellers at the moment in the Noel Low category wine, they are mostly sparkling because these bubbles, they help uh, the lack of the alcohol. But also, uh, I think it's not only this, because the, the lately the quality has improving a lot. But also there is, again, the tradition, there's resistance from uh, own wine buyers or um wine trade. I think because of this, the reason to this is there's not uh, correct distribution channels. With beer or spirits, there's much uh, more tolerance and less resistance. So a beverage uh, distributor can sell it as well. But with the non-alcoholic wine, we don't go through this route because I, I think there's uh, much more improvement there to do. And last but not least, uh, there is a difficulty uh, with the non-alcoholic wine, which is the legal challenges. Um, so there is still the definition is still very vague and differs from different countries to different countries. And most of the time, those products, we don't know where to put them. So altogether, I think it's a perfect recipe for a storm. <laughs> Yeah, isn't it just? That's a very good point to ask this question, uh, because I find it quite confusing. Uh, what is alcohol free? Because at first thought, uh, you might think that's zero, uh, but it's not necessarily the case, is it? Yeah, actually, this is very confusing. And to, still today, I am <laughs> confused as well myself. But when we say, first of all, there is a differences between the alcohol levels, but also there are differences in the alcohol-free and the alcoholized wine. When we see, say alcohol-free, it can be anything. It can be just uh, based on grape must, grape juice. Not necessarily it has to go to fermentation. But when we say dealkalized wine, it needs to go through an alcoholic fermentation where the, all the aroma, aromas uh, flavors and happen. And then we apply a second process to dealkalize and to remove the alcohol. And then uh, dealkalized wine uh, has different categories within self, no alcohol and low alcohol. So if we are in Europe, according to OIV regulations, no alcohol is less than 0.5. And anything between 0.5 and up to 8% is low alcohol. But if you're talking about dry markets, then no alcohol is 0.02, which is also considered as a halal product. But if we are in US, then US tolerance is less, it's 0.05. But again, they there you can still find so many non-alcoholic products labeled less than 0.5. So it is it is a bit challenging. So it is also, I think, confusing the consumer. And also it's a very challenging situation for the producer because they need to, um, uh, they're, they're not familiar with uh, this new category, uh, legalities, but also they need to produce so many different labels for different export markets. Wow, it's a complicated world. Just before we talk about how deal alcoholization works, which is um, uh, easy for me to say. Uh, let's talk about the role of alcohol, because I always say to people there is a, a sort of je ne sais quoi to the role of alcohol in a beverage. You don't necessarily kind of know that it's there if it's well made, but you certainly know if it's not there. How best do you, and uh, you'll be better at this than me because you're a 
MW student for a start. How best do you describe the role that alcohol plays in a beverage? Actually, I must admit that when you asked the role of alcohol, it gave me a little bit of like shivers because this year in the MW exam, uh, in the contemporary issues, we had this question. Now that the questions are published, I can I can uh, mention that there was a question about law of alcohol, role of alcohol, and in the quality of the wine. So now all of a sudden, it made me to feel like I was in the exam. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, um, the role of alcohol. I think it is role of alcohol is. I would say it's very important, uh, especially if we're talking about wine. So. It has four or five different, at least, lead um, major uh, contributions in the wine. First of all, the alcohol fermentation produces the esters. And these esters are often very volatile and they contribute significantly aromas of the wine. So when we remove the alcohol, significant amount of the volatile aromas are stripped out as well with the alcohol. And also the conservation of the alcohol is very important for the overall wine quality because it is a, a balancing factor for the acidity, for the sugar. And if you're talking about red wines, it's the, the tannins. So again, if it is missing, an important uh, major player from the equation is missing. And also uh, it affects the wine organoleptically. So it increases the alcohol, the ethanol, increases the perception of the volatile aromas. And also the higher the alcohol level uh, is in the wine, it tastes sweeter, it increases the body, and also gives a warmth feeling in the finish, then elongates the finish as well. And last thing, it's very, very important. Alcohol acts as a preservative. So if you are removing the alcohol, then uh, no and low alcohol wines can be um, very particularly susceptible to microbiologic spoilage. So it's not about, like, when we say alcohol, it's not about only, like, mood enhancer or mood changer, uh, they are very important technical uh, contributions to the beverages. And so how does de-alcoholization work? My understanding has always been that there are some different ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, yes, there are uh, different ways of doing it. So um, uh, to to begin with, our product, incoming product is wine. It needs to go to uh, undergo a vinification process fermentation process and then we will remove the alcohol and there are different methods but the most common ones are membrane technology distillation and spinning cone column so uh, in my experience in bev zero we use uh, low temperature vacuum distillation and spinning cone column so i can give a little bit more details on these two methods basically spinning cone column also based on a vacuum distillation uh, method But the only difference is it has rotating columns and um, other equipments of uh, low temperature vacuum distillation. They are based on the molecular segregation. So it is a very technical process. We feed the wine in a technical system, in an equipment. um, And then in one pass, in single pass, we are able to separate three fractions, which is a dealkalized fraction. And also we can retain the original characteristics of the wine, which we call essence of the wine. And then we have the alcohol separated. And in our technology, um, uh, the alcohol, uh, there's a rectifier. So the alcohol is rectified up to 85%. So meaning the losses are very minimized. So it's mm. a, in a long story, like in a nutshell, yeah, this is the, 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 the main process of the dealkalization.
it's complicated. How do you um, protect those uh, delicate nuances of flavor uh, and texture as well um, in this process? Um, yeah, so again, this is very much depending on uh, what the final alcohol level of a brand or the producer wants to go. Uh, because if you are going down to zero, zero, unfortunately, almost all the volatile uh, aromas, esters, are uh, stripping away with the alcohol. So we are losing most of the aromas. But what we have is, uh, you know, we are having a textured and balanced product, but the aromas are gone. But if we can allow to go up to 0.5, then we can contribute the essence of the wine the aromas back into the dealkalized portion. And then they are pretty much, we are capturing 98% of the aromas. And um, this is also because it concentrates the products, the aromas become more concentrated. So we also use this method actually, not only for dealkalization, but when we started in uh, 30 years ago in California, uh, we were doing more alcohol adjustments and sweet spotting to kind of balance the wines lowering the alcohol and increasing the aroma content because we concentrate it. So if we are allowing a little bit of alcohol, going back to your question, then we can capture the aromas. But what is really important, because we are dealing with so much zero-zero wines as well that we cannot add back the essence, uh, what we recommend um, to everyone who wants to dealkalize wine, first of all, you cannot dealkalize any wine because not every wine is suitable for dealkalization. The parameters are really important. And also the characteristics of the original wine is very important. Um, so if you have a very good balance and you know textured and weighty product, then you will have a really good textured product as well, regardless of the aromas. But if there's any flow or if there's any unbalance or very light uh, product, then everything will be concentrated your flows and your imbalances will be concentrated. So today, what we recommend is if a producer wants to do a non-alcoholic wine, they should even start in the vinification step. They should vinify accordingly. And hopefully in five, 10 years, we will go back to the vineyard and we will start in the vineyard to be able to have this delicate flavored and textured wines, non-alcoholic wines. By going to the vineyard, you mean that in viticulture, you will develop the grapes knowing that the end product is going to be a, a zero or a low alcohol wine. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so there could be different types of clones to be used or obviously different varietals uh, to be chosen or different trellises systems to be able to affect the lower alcohol, final alcohol level, but also uh, maturation of the, of the physical maturation of, of the grapes as well and achieving the certain parameters that we need for the alcoholization. And you really need, by the sounds of it, very good raw materials you can't you know to coin a phrase use any old crap for um for a, a de-alcoholized product yes definitely i mean if you have a really good raw material and if the technology is not good enough or know-how is not good enough you can still create a very crappy non-alcoholic wine but if your raw material is really bad there's no way that you can create a good non-alcoholic wine um so raw material is very important but also what the aim is trying to make as lean as clean possible products so if the raw material is really good and the technology is good and you are you know what you're doing 
then there is not much adjustment needed. Um, so then we can achieve as much as natural products possible. The raw materials, uh, you know, the better the quality, the more you'll pay generally. Um, is this process technically more expensive than making regular wine? Uh, it is more expensive than the regular wine. It is not just because of the process being expensive. The alcoholization is not very expensive pro- uh, process. We're talking about cents uh, per liter. Uh, but what is expensive is when you dealkalize, you have a yield loss. So depending of the final alcohol level you're achieving, uh, that portion is lost. So in in our case, the final alcohol level is we're achieving 85 ABV. So this 15% is lost in the production. Depending on the wine type and the alcohol, this loss can be between anything to 10 to 15. So it's an actually important loss to consider in the finances of the final product. Uh, and also not that um, many, I mean, uh, not that a majority of the wineries, they have this equipment in-house. So they should, they need to send it to service centers. And obviously we're talking about the transportation cost as well. So the process itself is not expensive unless you want to invest and have your own equipment. Getting service is uh, is not expensive, but the yield loss and transportation obviously increases the price. And then if you are looking for a same quality level of an alcoholic wine, I would say, then in the end you will pay more to create this product um, in a non-alcoholic version. I suppose there is a balancing factor in certain markets where duty is um, levied at quite a high level. So the United Kingdom obviously has just had a duty change back in August and uh, duty is levied according to the percentage of the wine. It was bad news for fortified, you know, sherry and the likes, but actually for lower alcohol wines um, and uh, sparkling wine as well, it was uh, better news. And then, of course, uh, there are heavy levels of duty in a lot of the Nordic markets as well. So presumably, uh, where you're dealing with um, uh, an expensive process or a yield loss or expensive raw material, you can at least benefit from far lower to no duty levels. Exactly, definitely. Yeah, that is uh, very true. And also, especially with the new regulations in UK, with the duty, um, not only going to uh, no alcohol. So if you are below a certain level of alcohol, then you are uh, having benefits of paying less taxes. So uh, in the studies we did, uh, even including the transportation and the yield loss and the cost of the dealkalization, it is more beneficial um, in comparison to the high uh, duty um, costs. Yeah, so there's, that is that it kind of balances out in some markets, not all the markets, obviously. Yes, because some of the traditional markets don't really have any uh, duty levered at all. So therefore, yeah, you would have a, 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 a price challenge there. Um, another issue, potentially, um, there's a real fashion at the moment, as you will know from your uh, enthusiasm for wine and from your MW student uh, activity, uh, there's a real fashion for um, low intervention winemaking right now. So the, uh, the process... You know, do, of doing as little as possible, really, in the uh, production of uh, a wine. Does dealkoholization run somewhat counter to that drive for, for lower intervention? Yeah, actually, it's very interesting. I was in a panel this uh, this year in ProWine uh, in the Nolan Law area, 
And I got this question asked from the audience if I was agreeing that if a no uh, no alcohol wine or low alcohol wine could be called low intervention. And to be honest, I don't think that it's possible because, as you say, when you are dealkalizing the wine, we are interfering with the wine a lot. So we are changing the, all the constitution of the wine. So even though after that you do less adjustments, I think that uh, product cannot be called as low intervention uh, product. Uh, I mean, yes, as you said, in there is like much, you know, trends uh, at the moment in the wine industry about that as well. But it's, I think, a little bit of like, you know, marketing and, you know, it's like a sales point, sales agreement um, argument. But uh, I don't think I wouldn't uh, put non-alcoholic wines, even though they have as less adjustment possible in a low intervention wine category. I haven't asked you yet um, about Bev Zero because um, it, it's um, a, a company with, uh, as you said earlier on, uh, quite a long history and very successful, but not exactly a household name either. So uh, just tell us about uh, Bev Zero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bev Zero, yeah, it's actually it's a 30 year old company founded in California, Santa Rosa, uh, Sonoma County, 30 years ago. And actually, the main purpose of um, of the company back then was alcohol adjustment, mostly tax purposes of the you know high uh, duty taxes in US. And so we have been dealing with so many wines from especially California um, to adjust the alcohol. But then the company expanded quickly and then had facilities in Spain and South Africa and Chile. And with the uh, trends um, going towards the no and low alcohol, we started to do more and more um, low alcohol uh, production. And obviously within this 30 years, we also improved our technology and we learned so much. So now we are... Um, helping in the beverage industry because not only wine. In Spain, mostly our focus is wine, but in California and South Africa, we also give service with beer, cider, and functional beverages. So we are uh, kind of giving uh, turnkey service in the industry to help uh, brand owners, uh, winemakers, brewers to manage the alcohol and flavor within their products. Um, And also we help them to, you know, to have their idea, uh, you know, to kind of create the product just from an idea. Uh, because at the moment, as the category is increasing, um, many people want to launch their brands. Um, so with our know-how and expertise, uh, we help them uh, to launch their brands. And also the other part of the company is uh, we also... Uh, distribute the deacalization equipment and uh, help uh, wineries to have their own uh, deacalization plants design and set up. It's a booming business, so it's a good place to be. Um, and it's changing very, very fast. Um, tell us about some of the innovations that we're currently seeing come to the market. Um, so the innovations, I mean, I think not exactly the innovation, but the quality has been improving a lot especially in the non-alcohol wine area, because before, uh, to be able to uh, compensate the loss of alcohol, uh, many products were just, you know, relying on lots of sugar, grape mass addition, and they were like so much sweet uh, products. And now it is changing a lot um, with the improved quality and improved uh, choices. We are seeing more 
more dry products on the market. And not only sparklings, uh, we see really very well-made non-alcoholic still wines as well. Um, so this is, I think, a very big innovation in the wine area. But also, uh, what's also happening is there is now, um, the category lines are getting blurred. So before, you know, the consumers were more, you know, wine consumers, beer consumers, spirits consumers, but now it's more occasion-based uh, consumption choices. So that's why we see also this switch in the, the different uh, types of drinks. So now there's so much uh, exchange between wine and other types of drinks. So we see lots of functional uh, beverages or functional non-alcoholic wines. Um, that is, I think, is a big innovation. And I think that is going to, uh, going to boom. Uh, you already see it in the UK market is a very big category of functional beverages. But also the formats, the formats are, um, you know, different formats are available now in, uh, all, across all the product lines from anything from cans to bag in box. Uh, it's not only uh, glass bottles anymore. So I think, yeah, it is, um, it is interesting times in terms of innovation in the wine uh, category as well. Yeah, I spoke to uh, Christine Parkinson, um, an estimable figure within the drinks world uh, with a real interest in, in low and no. And she told me, this is a couple of years ago now, but she told me the uh, category was um, a really interesting example of the demand leading to the product rather than necessarily the other way around. Ordinarily, you know, a, a product might be developed and create the demand, but the demand was there and it took uh, the industry a while to kind of respond to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I I totally agree with Christine. And actually, this was also, I forgot to mention in the beginning, but this was also one of my motivations uh, to, st- to, you know, to stay in the category and why I was fascinated with the category. Because it was very interesting to be witness of how the demand, the consumer demand, drove the category. So I think, I mean, in maybe in the history of the wine, it's uh, very, you know, unique times that uh, the, the consumer is demanding and the wine industry is trying to adapt. So, um, so it is yeah, with this, uh, you know, new um, trends in the healthier lifestyle, wellness, uh, mindful, cons- mindful consumptions or young generation, um, there is a demand there. And also I see it uh, from our experience in, in the business. Within the last three years, before we were reaching out the wineries, especially in the production um, countries, to tell them about the alcoholization or no and low alcohol wine, and they were like, uh, there, there was almost no interest except a few big names. Uh, but now, every other day or every day, we receive so many calls from, you know, wineries in La Mancha, wineries in Burgundy, Bordeaux, uh, South France. So they're interested. I mean, at least they want to know. So it is uh, very interesting. And then also what I also uh, hear a lot, uh, wineries, they call us and they say, my importer is asking me to create a no-alcoholic wine. How do I do that? So now there's a demand from consumer goes pressures the importers, distributors, and now it starts to pressure the wine producers. So it's very interesting. Yeah. And do you see research that suggests that um, this is a generational thing? Is it really young people driving this? 
Um, actually, I think uh, yes, and especially according to the IWSR researches, um, yes, mainly young generation Gen Z uh, is a drive, but now it's going um, to more older generations as well. So um, I was reading in their last report of IWSR, uh, they were mentioning that 58% of the millennials, they are switching between no alcohol and uh, normal alcoholic uh, wines. So it's a huge percentage uh, for that generation. I think now it's also we have um, adventures and we have curious uh, consumers and uh Regardless the age, I think they want to try. But mostly, yes, uh, the young generation, because what we were talking about before, the attitude or social um, ecosystem of younger generation is, is different. So they are more motivated uh, by their lifestyle rather than necessarily uh, by products or the brands. Really interesting. Uh, if you were going to tempt me into abstinence, and I'm a you know a regular wine drinker and spirits drinker as well, actually, I uh, don't do much beer, but could you tempt me with a few exciting options that you personally really enjoy? So actually, I think I have two different um, uh, kind of ways to approach this. Because also I am a you know wine drinker and I like also spirits, um, but let's say every, I mean all, always in moderation. But when I first started in the category, I was still wearing my wine hat, and I was trying to judge this product wearing my wine hat. But then uh, a few years after, I started to not to wear my wine hat and I start to wear my you know non-alcoholic or low alcohol or beverage hat so in this case I can uh, recommend a few different products because if I wear my wine hat uh, for example Noti I find it very uh, very close to an experience that I would have from uh, an alcoholic wine especially the sparkling uh, it's very dry very mineral and now they launched um, the white and red and rosé as well, still wines. Old Bird in the sparkling category also, I, uh, I, I can judge that wine with my wine hat. And it's a new brand, a UK-based brand, Zeno. Zeno, they have white, red and, and sparkling. Especially the red wine, I think they came quite close to what we would experience from a wine. Um, they read as a Cabernet Sauvignon, so you can expect to have this pyrazinic, uh, you know, bell peppers, capsicum, Cabernet notes um, in their red. And red is very difficult to achieve. If I wear my beverage hat, then Ish. I don't know if you know them. It's a Danish uh, brand. They have oh. all sorts of spirits as well, non-alcoholic spirits. And they have sparkling wine and still wines. And they have a very different approach. Um, all their, amongst all the uh, different products that they have, they have uh, one thing common. Each product, regardless the spirit or the wines, they have a spicy finish. So I think it's um, kind of a nice contribution of the, uh, the wine-based uh, drinks. And last but not least, <laughs> I like also uh, Tree Spirits Blurred Wines. So they, I like the uh, branding a lot because they call it Blurred Wines because they also incorporate some functional or spicy notes into the wine product. Yeah, I think these mm. would be my favorite ones. Ah, I must say... 
uh, not the wine category, but if you are into, but you said that you don't like beer. But if you're into cider, I can recommend you Malus. It's a CBD infused cider. So it's it's a tasteful and nice experience. Yeah. Well, in fact, my uh, worst alcoholic experiences have been at the hands of cider. So that's probably not a bad <laughs> idea. But um, uh, some very good suggestions there. I'm, I'm aware certainly of Naughty because they've got quite a high profile and and uh, the product is indeed really good and actually the design uh, that goes into the packaging um, and the innovation and the names and so forth is is really imaginative and, and striking as well um, as you say and we normally uh, round off the drinking hour with a desert island drink it could be spirit wine it could be no or low um, if you were stuck on a desert island and of course you have a keen interest in no and low but if you're stuck on a desert island you might think um, to hell with that I want um, DRC or whatever what would you have if you were stuck on a desert island Oh my God, that is a very difficult question because now like so many things crosses my mind. I would go a little bit classic here. I think I would have my bubbles. I would go with uh, champagne because I think uh, in a deserted island, day, noon or evening, I think it will be a great companion. However, I would be even very happy if um, a, a really top house, uh, they launched a lower alcohol version of their prestige cuvées, uh, I will be even happier. So I could have less alcohol and drink more and enjoy all the bubbles and all the uh, the autolytic notes of uh, from long aging. So yeah. I hope uh, some champagne houses are listening to me and um, they will uh, start a project about that. Before I well, end up in a deserted island. There's a gauntlet uh, laid down um, <laughs> from uh, Irem. So let's see what happens. It's been fascinating talking to you about uh, what is a, a really exciting area uh, developing all the time. Irem, thanks uh, very much for joining us here on The Drinking Hour. Thank you, David. It was a pleasure. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. Let's round off as ever with some medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame and our focus is on no and low for sober October. Uh, This was uh, big news in 2023. More than 900 entries from over 30 countries have been rigorously judged by 62 international experts, uh, buyers, sommeliers, mixologists, bartenders, communicators, you name it. A total of 665 medals were awarded across a range of categories out of that uh, 900. And I mentioned that wine was a challenging area for uh, zero alcohol, but New Zealand is uh, rising to the challenge. Uh, Giessen, 0% Pinot Gris non-vintage, uh, won uh, 96 points and also scooped a trophy representing best in show. The judges said of this uh, 0% Pinot Gris, a subtle nose of buttered stone fruits. The palate is full with bold notes of white peach, citrus, green apple and a streak of salinity. The acidity appears on the mid palate and it has a pleasing length. Very drinkable, they said. And from the same stable, uh, here's a red that uh, scooped a gold medal and 96 points. Uh, No mean feat, as uh, Ren was saying, uh, reds are uh, very challenging for zero alcohol. So Giessen, 0% Merlot, uh, non-vintage. The judges said this. 
Intense, appealing aromas of ripe plums with a hint of chocolate and a complex palate. Crisp and well-balanced acidity with a touch of underlying sweetness, giving structure and a lingering finish. And another wine without the alcohol, Eden Vale Cabernet Sauvignon, non-vintage, a gold medal winner again, 95 points for this. The judges said, soft, highly attractive nose with the Cabernet blend of dark fruit and vegetal notes. It develops really nicely with a good full flavour of warm spice notes and vanilla on a rounded palate. Harmonious tannins with a lovely sweet finish. Winning a trophy with uh, a gold medal and 97 points, uh, Dijing Bergamot from Belgium also won a silver in the no and low and tonic category. Uh, so a, a great haul for this particular product from the IWSC. The judges described it this way, an abundant, complex and rich aroma and flavour profile boasting the natural heat of ginger. It's beautifully moderated by dilution, making it a strong contender for cocktails and longer drinks. And if you're seeking an alternative to gin with its usual sort of 40%-ish alcohol, often quite a bit more, how about this? Motivo Slow Sipping Botanicals won a gold with 97 points. It's 0.1% alcohol, so a trace, really. Here's uh, what the judging panel said. Sharp nose with spiced hints, an explosion of flavours. Basil and bitter herbs come through strongly with citrus peel and pepper on an apple cider vinegar base. A lovely punch with a joyful finish. Finally, an interesting one from Italy. This got a gold with a whopping 97 points. Amarico Aperitivo. Uh, this is 0.8% alcohol. Uh, so still under 1%. Uh, this is uh, a rival, potentially, I guess, to some of those delicious Italian Amari. Um, here's the tasting note. Attractive, bitter, earthy aromas with a lovely herbal, gentian complexity on the palate and balanced sweetness, giving a rounded mouthfeel and perfumed texture. A fantastic long and lingering finish. And it's uh, time for our less lingering finish now. Uh, plenty more medal winners, by the way, to inspire you at the IWSC.net if you want to uh, search for those low and no winners. Uh, there are plenty of them, 665 of them. Um, that's it for another edition of The Drinking Hour. Uh, my thanks to Irem for a fascinating chat. Uh, good luck to you if you're doing some sober October work. And do join us next time. For now, though, goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.